Welcome to Lab the Podcast. We are uncovering enchanted reality through conversations with people whose lives and work give us a glimpse of the life and beauty of the gospel. We're so glad you're joining us for the conversation. Lab the Podcast starts right now. Welcome to Lab the Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us for the conversation. And we get to have a conversation with acclaimed artist and filmmaker Norman Stone. Norman embodies a life of faith that will make you curious. He makes you hopeful. And I think he'll make you smile when you think about the future of faith and art. Director Norman Stone began his professional career in television as the youngest producer-director to be working at the BBC and soon established himself as a top filmmaker with his highly acclaimed A Different Drummer about the blind and deaf Christian poet Jack Clemo. Four years later, he created Shadowlands, the gripping film drama on the love and loss of C.S. Lewis. That earned two BAFTA awards, an international Emmy, and went on to win an award for Best Director. That film would go on be an award-winning stage play as well as a Hollywood movie. Then in 2020, Norman completed a major feature documentary featuring Ewan McGregor, The Final Fix, exploring a remarkably effective new treatment for drug addiction. Then in 2021, during lockdown, he wrote and directed The Most Reluctant Convert, which premiered in over 500 American cities in November in 2021, and has already been seen in 120 countries around the world. Norman, congratulations on the success of C.S. Lewis's The Most Reluctant Convert. It's a story beautifully told, and the demand proves it. Over $3 million in box office sales. So congratulations. Thanks for sharing time with everybody here. My pleasure, and thanks for having me on. It was a teamwork effort that made that happen, by the way. It wasn't just me. Uh, Well, it was a fantastic project. We get to unpack it a little bit and uh, spend some time talking about the film. But when I say you embody a life of faith that will make you curious and hopeful, it's because that was my experience. We get to cross paths here in Florida when you were out our direction talking about the, the most reluctant convert. That was this spring, and I was struck with a sense of humility and joy uh, about you that really did make me smile, and it made me want to know more about your story, more about the stories you're telling, and I'm curious, that sense of wonder and humility and joy that made you really a delight to be around and to hear share your passion for storytelling, has that just always been you and your way? Or are you in a new season of life that just has has welcomed that spirit to you? Well, it can't be bad to earn your living or spend your life doing, they're not always the same thing, uh, uh, with something you really would pay to be allowed to do. I mean, I love telling stories with pictures. I love directing and I love making people feel so much they can't help but think that's the sort of buzz line for me. Um, And I mean, I became a Christian at 16 and that was pretty darn good too. (laughs) I mean, you know, when you think about it, we've, we've got so many, you know, we can't grumble much, can we? I mean, because we've got so much going for us as Lewis will tell through all his works and books and even in the film. Um, you know, this, in fact, the Shadowlands film that I did originally in 1984, that comes from a quote from Lewis saying, 
these are the shadowlands. Real life hasn't begun yet. Just wait and see. So we've got the future and we've got the present and it is enjoyable. Now, things will probably now hit me. I'll get <laughs> bashed by a lorry. I don't know. But it just I have to say it is no hard work, ultimately, very hard work to do in one way, but so rewarding when you can actually make your mark and your days do something that you would really wish to do anyway. Yeah. Art story is great. Wouldn't it be great to tell stories that make you think? That's the point. Yeah. Well, it's everybody who's listening and watching just saw exactly what I mean. Um, here is a storyteller who not only uh, does that work, but does it in a way that there's a winsomeness about you that's pretty fantastic. And you're telling this story from Scotland, I think. Is that where you're living and working? Tell a little bit. Yes, I, I married a Scottish woman. She is a few rooms away in that direction and um i ended up living up here too been up here 28 years five kids all grown up now usually in the film business not one decent dentist or solicitor among them i don't know what went wrong but basically uh it's it's yes it's a lovely place to be and i'm now a grandfather hurrah no one told me that would be so much fun hey. it is so far yeah there you, a year. <laughs> there you and go I can't wait for the next one grandson or granddaughter it's a grandson in rejoicing in the wonderful name of wolf jack Oof, that is i didn't think of that don't blame me Uh, it sounds a bit like a a, either a villain or a a delta blues guitar player his his father my son-in-law is called rickson reed rickson so wolf jack rickson just doesn't you just hear the beat right there you just hear it that's a fantastic name he's absolutely smashing yeah, that's a beautiful name. There will be much ahead for that. Anybody with a name like Wolfjack, that's a great name. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mentioned embodiment. Uh, that's an idea uh, that you you put on display. It's an idea that we're thinking a lot about. And we're in a time in America when faith is becoming more and more abstracted. It's disconnected, kind of floating away from anything in reality. And I think that's why Lewis and his story are so powerful and attractive uh, to our moment right now. He embodied this thing. He wrote Surprised by Joy and had a sense, again, a, a way that he had come to live that even though we haven't met him uh, in person, he enchants us and his stories do. And you have done that with his film. This isn't your first film project around his life and work. How did you become interested in Lewis? When did that part of storytelling in your in your life intersect? Um, well, you mentioned in the introduction this blind and deaf Cornish poet called Jack Clemo, who is very impressive. Uh, and I met him, uh, and he knew God. He's a good Christian guy. He knew God better than more or less anyone I've ever met. And he hadn't heard or seen, when I made the film, for 25 years. So no middleman. Mm. Boy, it was God real. And I did the story of his life and dramatized it and had interviews with him as well. And I, it was very successful. It got an award and, and everyone seemed to think it was, you know, great reviews and everything. And I thought, why is that? That's, that's pretty, because it didn't uh, hold back the Christian faith at all. That was all about him struggling forward on it. And it was for the BBC. Um, and it was fine. I thought, why are people so getting in tune with this, listening to this? And it was because I decided, and I think I'm right, 
uh, he earned the right to be heard. Mm. He'd been to Helen back, and he, when you spoke, it was rich, well-earned speech because he'd, he'd done it all. And you listened when he said whatever he would say. He'd been there and back, and you listened. And I thought, as I left the BBC back then and went freelance, I thought, who else do I know who's earned the right to be heard? Two and a half seconds later, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> because we know about, I had never been brought up on the, I wasn't brought up on the Narnia Code, for example, or, sorry, the Narnia Tales. I wasn't brought up in with Lewis all the time, but I knew enough about him as a Christian that he was a really faithful and very clear speaker and a great guy and apologist and so on. But of course, it was the relationship with uh, the Joy Davidman uh, wife. He married this girl called, woman called Joy Davidman, and she gets cancer, and then they pray for healing, and she gets better. And thank you, God, but she goes back and dies horribly, mm. and it knocked him for six. And that, he had been to... I mean, his mother had died when he was nine from cancer, and now the only woman that is, it meant something to him in his life does the same thing. That's a big blow. And his eloquence and honesty to be able to talk about that uh, is just breathtaking. And the idea of understanding that he's talking about that means that you want to hear what he says about other stuff as well. He had earned the right to be heard. So that's how I got involved. I've done another film about. Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia, called The Narnia Code. I did another film about, um, again, for the BBC, for something uh, called Beyond Narnia. That was a few years ago. You, once you get into Lewis, you can't forget him or shuffle him off onto your Christmas card list, and that's it. Uh, not at all. He has a way of speaking, especially today, and I'd like to mention that if I could, um, that makes not only sense, but has heart, meaning, and makes you think. Mm. So why do I say, to, especially today, we filmed this, uh, this film under lockdown of COVID. We didn't know anyone else that was filming at that time, but we took great care, cost a lot of money to be safe. But we went for it and filmed this, um, basically, surprised by Joy Lewis's book about his own struggle to faith. Um, when no one else was working at all. But when it came out, it's had a huge, a huge response. It still is. And I think it's for this reason. When Lewis really earned the right to be known around the world, I mean, yes, screw tape letters in the late 40s and so on, but it was really when he was called by the BBC again uh, to come up to London from peaceful Oxford into the Blitz where Hitler's bombers were blowing up London as if there was no tomorrow, he would come up into the BBC building, which itself was hit by a bomb, and he would tell, he was asked to tell the people, the suffering people of Britain, about the Christian uh, gospel and about Christ and about the, the faith. Now, that's an unusual request to be done, but they said, you know, there were people were getting knocked to smithereens by the bombs, and he did that. And Everyone was hungry to hear it, or they wanted to hear what he had to say. So much so that pub owners in London were well known for shouting, quiet, everybody, Mr. Lewis is on the radio. <laughs> and they would. <laughs> they would be quiet, and they'd sit their beer while listening to the Christian gospel and the thinking behind faith and so on. That became a book called Mere Christianity. 
And he was known then throughout Britain and soon throughout the world because he could speak in ordinary people's language. Why not Mm. Um, to ordinary people? So why do I say today, COVID, for the first time since the Blitz in Britain here, we have people who are dying and were dying. Hopefully, I hope the worst is over. But we were at that very point of filming. People were getting... You know, Mrs. McCafferty, two doors down, has just died, and her husband's had to go to the hospital, and he's going to die, and so on. Never since the Blitz have we faced our mortality hmm. in that way. And back then in 1942, Lewis spoke to a hungry audience who were facing their mortality. And since then, we forget all that, and we're meant to be consumers and have two and 2.5 children and an extra car and live, buy things, and that's what that's life. No, it isn't. So COVID comes along and knocks us for six. People are dying. People are suffering terribly. And I I really believe Lewis's words speak as fresh as before to this particular moment. And the result is I've never had such a popular film in such a short time ever. I mean, these people are just crazy for it. And I think that's great. Lewis's truth and simplicity and good communication, including humor, um, good communication works still, the message still the same. And people are again realizing that there's something else after this and what are they going to do? So I think that must be part of it because it's non-Christian markets as well as Christian markets that seem to be responding well. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think that you're spot on. There's a moment that we're living in that needs a voice. It needs, we, we, we're waiting for that voice. And maybe looking to the future, I know a younger generation looking to a bunch of influencers who haven't experienced enough life to have faced what Lewis was facing and then the context he was writing from. And there's a richness to it that makes us sit up and, and think and think well. And we're hungry for it. We're hungry for that type of conversation. What was it about The Most Reluctant Convert as a storyteller? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that landed on your desk or how you were asked to get involved with the project. Because we were in this moment, people weren't working. And I'm, with every project, you probably look at it. And I'm curious what you're looking for that says, that's a story that we can tell well. How did you know that this would translate? Uh, in the way that it did, because FPA brought it to you. It was a stage, an adaptation for the stage that you were going to then put on screen. What was it that made you look at that and say, well, we've got the moment, this is the right moment, but this is the right piece of art, and I think we can do it. How did you know that that would be, or did you know? Well, life is not always tidy, is it? In fact, I think it's a definition that it's not. Um, So I didn't, that sounds wonderfully sensible, what you've just said. But I didn't go and say, now, who can, what can we do to say this now? I was sitting at this very desk one evening, and Max McLean phones up, hands-free, I hope, because he's driving, <laughs> uh, off down to do his one-man show. Um, was it Carolina, somewhere like that? And uh, he, I guess he needed someone to talk to. I don't know. But he, I've known him for years. And um, he starts telling me about this one-man show doing really well. And I said, oh, that's very good, very good. And he said, do you think it's ever going to be good on a screen anywhere? I said, Max, it depends on the script. I don't know. I tried to change the subject. And he said, well, I'll send the script. I'll send the script now. 
and blow me down, he did, and which worried me because you, when good friends send you scripts, <laughs> they think the world of these scripts, and you are there to say, chop, dead, it doesn't work, it's awful. So to be honest, I shall admit to cowardice, which I don't normally do, uh, I didn't read it for two days. I left it unopened, didn't even open the, uh, the envelope, and I blow it, I've got to do it. Opened the envelope, read it, and it was great. It just leapt off the page. And Max has got a great talent. Um, he was playing Lewis, which is one of his talents, on stage. But he also has a way of tailoring together, literally like a little tailor, bits of his words from the books and making them speech words <laughs> as if in normal speech, which Lewis does a fair bit of. But Max has got a skill that I applaud. So his show was like Lewis standing up and speaking there and, and and i could see on the script fantastic so long story short he then said well write a, a screenplay because it isn't as you knew it wasn't a stage play so i did that in about six weeks and um it, you could feel it working with that foundations of max's um original play so we worked away at that uh saw it read it together and he said right we're on and somehow in spite of the closed down lockdowns and in spite of the fact that it was risky because of COVID and I need money, getting the money in round, um, he said, let's go for it. Good for him. Excellent. So we then did. But once we had, uh, this is an extra twist, but once we wanted to get a crew, we got a great crew because no one was working. So it's one of Kenneth Branagh's favorite crews. He did Belfast and all the other stuff, you know. Um, and they were great, and they turned up top quality and adopted the film for themselves. It doesn't always happen, and so much so that they were discussing C.S. Lewis and his points of view and this and that over lunch before I pulled them back to the set, and uh, they, they appear in the film. If you've seen it, you know, and they just threw themselves into it. So... That was great. It was a very happy thing to do. We didn't have much time because we had a smaller budget rather than a larger, but we got it all done. And everybody sort of felt this is special. Mm. And indeed, it was, it turns out. It's still racing down the tracks all over the place. The DVD sales are now on us. And uh, thousands of DVDs you can buy. I think we're number 12. We were number 18 at one point, which is I mean, it doesn't happen. So I'm, I've given up gasping when it was on t when it was on cinemas just for the day, November the third when we launched it. Just for the day, it became the second most viewed cinema film in the whole of America. I mean, come on! I, I, I thought someone was having a joke when they told me that, and they weren't. And they are, and then that had to run and run and run and run as well on that. So all I am doing, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the person that did his best on the making of it. Uh, you can never guarantee things, but that is pretty surprising where we are with that. And I'm glad because I think it makes people think, feel and think. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's what film can do well. Yeah. Well, the everything from the costumes to the set to shooting at Oxford to the way that you did every bit of it, you couldn't help but find yourself in the story, as you say, listening to Max do what he does, which is bring Lewis intimately to life and you get to hear him in his own words and he does i love the way you said tailoring 
them together so that it's just normal conversation. That he's brilliant, and I think the combination produced something really remarkable for everybody who's listening. If you haven't seen it already, C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. It's it's wonderful, and I'm curious, Norman, from a as a filmmaker. What you learned from now, how did shooting this film during lockdown and everything that you experienced, how did it change the way that you make films and that you'll make films in the future? Did you come away going, you know what, I didn't think that we could do X, but we'll do that from here on out? Uh, Well, no, I'm far too optimistic. I I thought we could do it, of course. But um, the, the thing is, it was a style. What you don't want is C.S. Lewis giving a lecture. What you don't even want, much as it's great on stage, is take your camera to the theatre and let you have the experience, fun that that would be. What you want to do is to make something so compelling in style and content that people don't want to leave if a fire alarm goes off. You know, you, you, you've got to um, get that. And and I'm long in the tooth. I've made many, 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 many films. And I'd done a lot of one-man shows, what they call breaking the fourth wall, but just one person on a location. If it's cold, real breath hangs in the air. It's all that. Jeremy Irons and lots of people have done them with me. And it works. It's an intense but very strong, entertaining piece of work. I'm not sure it would work for two hours, but it certainly works on the smaller levels. And I thought maybe we should do that, but I thought I've done that, and this this needs something more. So I just pushed it further. And to be honest, I stole. Yes, I am a kleptomaniac. <laughs> I stole from Dickens. And if you think of a Christmas Carol, um, which you've said the scene or read, and you get the spirit of Christmas past yeah. taking the repentant old grizzled sinner Scrooge to see his own life. And there's that point, let me see, there's that point when he sees himself as a a schoolboy who no one wants, he's being left behind. And I always felt that was so powerful. There's the old guy looking at the young guy who isn't ruined yet, but he's going to do that in his life. I thought that's so much better than just cutting away to a boy in the schoolroom, you know? Um, and it was more powerful. So I thought, if I use that technique and expand it a little and try to wrap it up, that obviously we're making a film that's front and end, uh, because obviously C.S. Lewis himself is going to wander down, bring everybody in to the show and then get so into it that you can, yeah, of course you can cut back and see um, hopefully wonderful dramatizations of his earlier life. But before you know it, he's actually appearing in his memories. Hang on a minute. He's interrupting himself and what he was saying at the time. That would fascinate me. Uh, It does not mean I'm going to do that for every film I ever do. Quite the reverse. But we are too timid in our use of film. We should explore storytelling, explore genre, explore possibilities, and never forget humor. Well, it was so fun to sit. We went on opening night when you all released it here in America, and it was so fun to have to be immersed in a story that was being mm. told. I even remember there was a moment where the breath was hanging in the the air. You got that, I think, at one moment at the very outside. I won't spoil yes. it for people to see it, but it, you had it. And if the fire alarm would have gone off, we wouldn't have wanted to leave. And that kind of storytelling is 
it's the form of art that can help us recover maybe what some of what we've lost the soul and i think a lot of us feel that here in america why and it's why this film i think was so wonderful it welcomed us into great thought that we felt and thought as you've said but it also allowed us to just do something together uh that was rich and meaningful and share something yeah. and, uh it felt it felt really really good and so we're see in- that's important because it started so many conversations apparently Mm. Mm. Um, who was it who wrote somebody was was saying how many conversations started just in their circle but there's something more and that's when I uh, invented the original Shadowlands somebody back in 1984 goodness I must have been three but nonetheless (laughs) at that time when I was um, interviewed about the film which had been proved very successful um, they said, what were you expecting to do with this? What were you intending to do with this film, Mr. Stone? And I thought, quick as I could, and said, I want to push open, swing, I, thought, right, I want to swing open the library doors. Hmm. Now, why did I say that? C.S. Lewis, I don't know how many other people you know about uh, who've done this. C.S. Lewis has sold over a quarter of a billion books and still going. That was a B, a billion quarter of a billion books and upwards, selling more books every year. Mm. The library is there. The books are there. I can get you to think. I can get you to feel. I can get you to get involved. I don't have to stand up on a pulpit and preach. Go look. Go explore. Go and disagree with him. That's great if you can do that because you'll you'll see what you're talk- who you're talking to at that point. Go and explore it and enjoy it. But it's all there. So I'm just the hors d'oeuvre. There goes the main meal. <laughs> I love that. It, you it was spent so much time and have spent, I mean, you think back to the 80s, which you were three at the time. And the 80s are coming back, by the way, for filmmakers. This was a huge weekend for an <laughs> 80s story to reemerge. But um, you spent a ton of time with Lewis. How has all that time thinking along the beam with him, walking the walks that he walked, how has that shaped you, the person, and you and your life of faith? How have you changed, having been a, a, a young Christian or a Christian, became a Christian at a young age, and then grown up, and, and how has Lewis himself left an imprint and widened your imagination and your faith? It's been wonderfully affirming in many ways. Um, we're not all like C.S. Lewis. You don't all have his gifts. He said, I'm not an evangelist. He said, but I can do what I can do. And he could. He could. His apologetics, his twists in logic and thinking just to say, how about that then? Or why not that then? How about this? You, you read Lewis or you watch his work if you get a chance to, and you say, I haven't thought of it like that before. And it's all from a certainty. Now, no one is perfect. And if we've got, if we've got a danger as little christians what we do is tend to put people in 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 painted windows you know so stained glass windows and make them saints we're not we're all meant to be saints in in in, uh christ's inheritance but we're not perfect uh in fact this the stained glass image when in the church we filmed and you remember that there was a lot of filming in a lovely church his church Mm -hmm. eddington where he used to go They've now put a stained glass window for Lewis in. I have to keep avoiding it with the cameras because it shouldn't be about that. And Lewis is so um, self-deferential and so aware of his own weaknesses. And indeed, if we do the next two 
parts of his life to make it three and there you get all of Lewis you will see he was by no means perfect there's some interesting surprises coming if that's the case but he did have Christ in his heart and an ability to speak think and make sense where other people run away and hide Mm. and it was as I said stick with what I said first it was very affirming of my faith and I am very grateful to Lewis some people I meet Michael Ward is one person who wrote the book Planet Narnia and others know everything about Lewis. What color shoes did he wear on September the 23rd, 1931? I don't know. He does. I bet you. But I do recognize a heart of someone who believes as I believe and Christ accepted him and Christ accepted me. And it's available for all to look and think. We let people off the hook so much and we go and into holy huddles in our churches and get distracted in various areas. Come on, folks. This is the real stuff. Our lives end, and there's a question mark that people need to answer. Mm. And Lewis didn't just know the answers. He spoke with compassion, humility, and great, great wisdom. Mm. That's as if I'm doing a commercial for Lewis. I'm not. (laughs) I'm just saying, join hands with him, join heads with him, join boxing gloves with him and see. Yeah. I love that. And just even the idea of swinging the library doors open, that the work is there. Chew on it. Yeah. Go for a walk. You can you can think along uh, the way yeah. with him. And you, maybe you'll disagree, but it's worth the conversation. What a worthy and great person to have a conversation with. And there's so much material to do it. And so many people like Dr. Ward who have are doing it well, helping us understand Lewis, even if you're intimidated by Lewis's work. And Lewis is approachable. He's a friend that you can sit down for a beer with, uh, for a walk with. Um, but there's amazing people and film now so that we can have access to his work, which is, is really, really a gift. Norman, one of the other things that I'm curious about as I thought about getting the opportunity to talk to you is just the, the gift you are to uh, all of us, whether you're a young artist or just uh, somebody who is thinking about faith and culture. There's a, a pretty thick malaise here in the States um, that we're all feeling. And at times, it feels like we all want to participate in something good and true and beautiful. Uh, but to be honest, there's a lot of us who are just feeling a lot like giving up, like it's not worth it uh, to keep fighting for those kind of stories and to participate in that kind of life and imagination. And I'm sure along the way, you've been in filmmaking for a while that just personally and vocationally you felt a bit like giving up or uh, that maybe it isn't worth the effort to tell these great stories and I'll go do something else. I'm curious if you've felt those moments before as an artist and if there, what was it that kept you saying, no, I'm going to tell rich stories, the ones that make you think and feel. What was it that kept you orienting forward to this long career where you're still giving us this kind of rich story? Well, um, it it depends if we can focus on God and see that what the game is, uh, what the deal is. Um, Ultimately, God has to be in control of this, and we usually get very holy huddly about that. Yes, what actually uh, that means is I think he's interested in our lives and so on. Now, listen. If it were up to me, I'd have made my favorite films, and then I've got Oscars. I'd have done that years ago. 
that doesn't work that way. And I, my job is not to tell God what he should do. We're very good at that, although we wouldn't admit it in that way. Uh, we just got to listen a lot and really do what we can. My, you know what Martin Luther said? He said, if I knew that Christ was coming tomorrow, I'd still plant a tree today. Because we are under the command to keep going, to work this place, uh, not just Psalm 8 and other places, but we, we, this is where we are put to look after, to steward and to create and challenge. But if he says no, I have to accept that. Now, the one I'm really wanting to do about child trafficking in, <laughs> in 1885 uh, is not a comedy musical, but it is actually very strong and relevant today. Why 37 years ago, when I discovered that story, didn't it happen? Mm. Not my job, not my homework. I've just got to say it didn't. I tried and I've tried it. It may not happen this time. It's got closer than ever. I don't want to be stuck by pushing at the doors of heaven in the wrong direction. And if I get through and God allows me to do it, I'll do that. No, I've got to do it when opportunities arise and I can pour the the real spirit into it, the real feel about it. So my job is not to become famous and a wonderful Oscar-winning uh, director. Nice, though, that might be. It may actually be horrible. But my job is to obey, hmm. just as Lewis's was, just as yours is. My job is to not give up. What do you mean give up? If God has said, be there, do that, giving up is not on the card you know it's not it's not an option you may feel like it and i don't doubt that and yes there's some tough times but we've just got to say okay what next what next yeah i can't hear you what next i'll sit and i'll work on it i'll pray and i'll listen now that is far too twee for me to claim i do that all the time because we're human beings we're up and down all over the place but ultimately that's the game plan we are not the referee we are not even the ball player we are uh, until he says so mm. but we are meant to be obedient faithfulness is the one thing that there's no other success I've, I've been annoyed occasionally by american evangelists in particular saying you've got to have success and god's about success success you know what is a definition for, definition of the definition of success mm. faithfulness mm. obedience walking away when you could have done so much you think but no so. mm. success is going running into the desert and hitchhiking a ride with the ethiopian in its chariot what was what's that all about well ethiopia is still the longest serving christian country in the world thank you that was success what running without without a limo yeah running without a limo mm. so that is the perspective that's the game plan all we have to do is do what we can do obediently to our best of our advantage. And here the sermon ends. I shall take a collection. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> See you next week. Oh, Norman, you know what? Both Lewis's voice and your just living witness in who you are, it's a, it's a gift to get to hang out with you. And so many of us <laughs> need... Tell the wife. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. The rigor and the, I talked about humility and joy and this winsomeness that you have. But the other thing I like about you is there's a, there is some fight in you. And okay. I, I just saw it right there that there's a, there's a fight to you. There's a little bit of you leaning in and saying, hey, I get your feelings. I know it's hard. I've been doing film for over 37 years now, waiting on this one project for 37 years. Lean into it. 
And I love it. So thank you for that. And don't ever lose that. As we all are, it's, it's really, really a gift to sit at the table with somebody who has the wisdom and the humility, joy, and the fight. And I just saw it. So can we talk about raising hell, speaking of fighting uh, a little bit? This is the next, this is the project. It's not a next project. I think you said 37 years ago you had the idea for this film. Tell us a little bit about the idea. This is an idea that intersects with work that we're passionate about. And I will, uh, spoiler, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something on our radar after Norman tells us about this. But tell us about raising hell and what's the story? Why is this story important to you? Well, it's the, I call it the greatest story never told because it is, okay, the simple story is that three Christians actually, but three unusual characters realized that in Victorian England, 1885, my granddad was born in 1888, so so it's not that far away, 1885, with Queen Victoria on the throne, everyone is so polite and so moral, and yet they will not face reality. They will not talk. It's worse to do sex than to talk about it, apparently. They covered their piano legs, so <laughs> it would be vulgar if you didn't. What? You know, and they were doing all this stuff, and everyone was so prissy and so nice, and lots of churches were full every Sunday. But nobody would be honest about what was going on just below the surface. And it had grown without restriction and grown again and grown again. So now you get, goodness, child trafficking on an industrial scale, baby farms, I'm keeping this out of the film, it gets to be so bad you don't want to talk about it, but baby farms being bred, babies bred for sex before they're one. In London and outside of London in England. This may offend some of your listeners. The fact is, it was so bad and nobody was doing anything about it that it was getting worse and worse and worse. And it was possible one man called William Stead, a a, a rebellious newspaper editor, it was possible to do something about it. It had to be done. You had to save these thousands and thousands of children and indeed young girls as well. And the story of how he did that and the difficulties and traumas, I couldn't write a better script story if I tried. What happens in that is just unbelievable. And he brought they, a girl, him, and Bramwell Booth from the Salvation Army, which were the only source of anyone being interested in this, as the Christian Revolutionary Army that the Salvation Army was at that time. They brought the government down, smash, crash, and changed the law. There are twists and turns all over the story, but basically, effectively, he was sent to jail by his enemies and got out when Queen Victoria said that she was not amused. And everyone suddenly said, no, we must do that. Queen Victoria, oh, yes, very queen-centered society at the time. And it's people started getting arrested at last, and people and, and the flesh trade was wiped out and subdued for almost, almost 100 years. Um, and by that time, it all faded away. We had new liberalism coming in. Uh, you shouldn't have um, uh, Dr. Bernardo's as a great child charity, and they had houses with pseudo mums and dads and recreated the family and all that. Oh, no, terrible. Anyway, what is what happened at that point was 
that it all began again. The Berlin Wall came down with that terrible phrase, fresh meat from the east. Mm. And the girls were kidnapped and brought across. It's happening in, in Ukraine now. That As they're coming out of Ukraine, they're getting brothelized. Um, the internet, World Wide Web, certainly no barriers there either. It was tech, sex tourism in the Philippines. These bad, bad things just whooshed down like, a, like an avalanche of, of, of mud and, and mess. And our society is into it now. Does your society in America agree with rights and wrongs, social rights and social wrongs? I mean, you get everything from extremism one side to wokeism on the other side and back again. Suddenly, we're lost. Mm. And it's getting worse and worse and worse again. Well, if these three Christians could bring the government down and stop it, I think we, we've got a job to do there. How dare we give up? Mm. So we will try and bring this um, up into the public eye and say, for goodness sake, wake up. Mm. Look what's happened. And these were Christians that did that in 1885. And no one has told their story. And a lot of Christians, good, tidy Christian people, wouldn't even now want to talk about those things. What's wrong? Do you think Christ lived in a, um, a, a perfect little blissful bubble? Mm. He was in amongst everything. And we are meant to follow him. Mm. And I would like to do that. Yeah. Well, the film, the the title, the working title for that film would be Raising Hell. And I got to see just like a glimpse of the story, the way it would be laid out and told or some early imaginations about it. And I can't think of a more important project. And from a storytelling standpoint, the, it, the ability for a story to look back at the past and bring history back into the forefront and allow us to help looking back make sense of our present and where we're going. Yeah. We need it. And I'll just say this. Can I, I don't know if I can say this. Can I tell you people what the need is, Norman? Can I say that? Yes. To make that film? Here's the deal. And Norman references three Christians who just said, they will bring what we have, the five loaves and two fish idea. And the reality is this film needs $12 million in funding to get to, to do it to do it well, to do it the way that Norman would like to do it. We need $12 million. And here's the deal. Tom Cruise made $13 million, was just his initial check for Top Gun 2, which I saw and I loved, and I don't, I don't begrudge Tom Cruise any of that $13 because it was super fun. It was $13 million worth of fun. But that movie will continue to make all sorts of money. I think it made $150 million this weekend. And it's a great story. It... But there's a story that needs to be told and a conversation that we need to have. And we only need $12 million to produce the entire film. If I'm hearing Norm Norman, am I hearing you right? That that number would produce the whole film. Yes, yes. Uh, and technically, we some people think we should have more. But I've been working on this for so long, I can do the full thrift and the full expense. Uh, <laughs> by that, I mean it'll look great. Yeah. But... 37 years is one way of doing it, waiting it, looking for locations, doing all this. And now we've got some top names that are wanting to be part of it as well. Just come back from this, the Cannes Film Festival, where one group in particular are very keen on getting in with three, two secular, one Christian, uh, who are interested in getting up there, but nothing yet. Yeah. So we will have to wait and see. But in film terms, as you say, people don't get up in the morning for it if they're stars and they'll get that amount of money for their pay. I will not do that, but I will make a film that will grab people by the throat and smile. I love it. 
Well, let's do this. Here's the, I got a few things for everybody listening. First, Norman, thanks. I don't want to be mindful of your time, Pleasure. but for everybody who's listening, go see C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. It's fantastic. It's a great story. It needs to be shared. It needs to be told. You're going to love it. So do do the work to just research on your own. We'll put some links up as to how you can download it, how you can stream the film, uh, but it's out. So go see The Most Reluctant Convert. That's number one. Take a look at Norman Stone's body work, Shadowlands, the other things that have been put out. I think you're going to love of just access now to a storyteller who is is engaged in the good and the true and the beautiful. That's number two. Number three, here's what I'm asking. Everybody who's listening to this conversation, I want you to put it down on a piece of paper, write down, we're praying for $12 million minimum for this next film. I'm passionate about the idea and the intersection of art and faith in, in the moment that we're in. So let's pray for it. And if you're listening and you have $12 million, shoot me a message. And I'll put I'll I'll send you a message to Scotland. And I'm not kidding. Uh, I'm waiting to. And I know you're out there, all of you. Uh, great stewardship and people who've made incredible decisions with finances. And we're waiting for the opportunity to meet somebody with some rigor and capacity and fight and faith. And I think Norman Stone's your guy. So, Norman, thanks for who you are and for allowing C.S. Lewis to come to life in this format. I can't think of a better starting point to, as we say, uncover enchanted reality. C.S. Lewis is a modern voice that allows us to look along that enchanted beam. And so we're super grateful. Norman, thanks for the work uh, that you're doing. Thanks for who you are. And we're cheering for you. Uh, we would love to see you make Raising Hell. Well, seriously, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, you've got a very good way of speaking on this uh, show of yours, and uh, may that long continue. And thanks for your help. It really is appreciated. Yeah. Thank you. Well, here you go. We'll meet back up with and celebrate over $12 million. How about that? We'll hope for that day. I'll buy the cocoa. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. Thanks, Norman. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. Remember to like and subscribe to Lab the Podcast and visit VUVIVO.com to help us uncover enchanted reality. We'll see you next time.